If you'd like a handout for tonight's lesson, there are a few gentlemen who are going around with those, just if you'd like. There are a few um, lists, that uh, one particular list that I would like for you to have if you want it. Uh, it'll also be on the screen behind me, but it might be helpful to be able to see that uh, in handout form if you would like one of those. Um, and if you'd like to open up your Bible to 2 Kings chapter 25, that's where we'll be here in just a moment, 2 Kings chapter 25. This morning's lesson looked forward to uh, this year, and in some ways the lesson tonight is looking backward uh, at the studies that we've been having on Sunday morning in regarding uh, the kings, uh, going all the way back to the United Kingdom uh, and the days of David and Solomon. Um, before we get to that, let me ask you a question. What happened over your Christmas holiday? What happened over your Christmas holiday? For many of you, even if I asked that question to people in the same family, the answer would be somewhat different based on the perspective of the person that I asked. But if I took that a step further, and let's imagine you're back in your school days and you come back from the Christmas break and your teacher asks you, what did you do over your Christmas vacation? Um, well, if I asked for a specific accounting of all of the events, everywhere you went, all of the things that you did, that would be much different than perhaps if I ask you to write an essay about your parents using this Christmas vacation as the example of, of that relationship. So all of those things would be true and accurate, but they would be different based on the perspective, the specific perspective that I was asking you to write from. And certainly it would be different if I asked you to write that today when all of those things just happened and it's fresh on your mind uh, versus a year from now, not just in terms of possible accuracy, but in terms of your perspective of the events. Um, it seems as though over the last few years we've had uh, quite a bit of sickness run through the family over uh, various breaks, Thanksgiving and Christmas. And I asked my mom about that. I said, you know, I don't remember us all being sick all the time over these breaks. You know, what's the deal? What happened? And she told me, she said, well, actually, your grandmother, um, that's Tookie that we've been praying for for some time now, um, she would always kind of get upset because we would go to East Texas to the McClenney family and we would see, you know, 50 people from all over the country. And it seemed as though we always came home sick. So when it was time for cash Christmas, uh, nobody was able to be there or somebody wasn't able to be there because of sickness. And, and I just totally didn't remember that. That mean it didn't happen? No, it happened. But my perspective was about all of the fun we had at both of those Christmases. And I forgot about, well, yeah, people were sick and there were some bad things that happened too. I think thinking about that is helpful to us for what it is that we're going to study tonight. We see that multiple accounts of the same events, while accurate in terms of the events that took place, can be very, very different based on when and why those things were written. With that in mind, I always find it fascinating when the Bible gives us multiple accounts of the same events. And if you stop and think about it, this actually happens a lot in the Bible, doesn't it? Can you think about times when we have multiple accounts of the same events in the Bible? Sure. Exodus and Leviticus and uh, record the law. But then Deuteronomy's second law records the law of Moses at a different time to a different generation. 
The Psalms are connected to many other events showing the feelings and emotions of men like David and Solomon and Moses and others as they experience things that we have recorded in what we call the books of history of our Old Testament from the book of Joshua through the book of Esther. Ruth is a book that zooms in on a specific family and story in the time of the judges. Uh, somebody asked me after a Bible class this morning and said, you know, do you think there were anybody that was, any bodies that were faithful, you know, trying to do what's right when all these wicked kings were ruling and so forth? And I said, absolutely. I think there was always a righteous remnant. And Judges is maybe the most negative book in all of the Old Testament in terms of the behavior of the people. And yet we're given this book, Ruth, from the same time period that shows, no, there were people who were trying to do what's right. The prophets that we're about to study in this coming quarter, or this quarter, provide God's running commentary on the events of the divided kingdom and the captivity. So we have the historical documents that say this is what happened. We have the prophets about the same events that say this is what God thinks about that. Um, even in Bible class last week, we talked about how there are three separate accounts in our Bibles that, re that relate to Hezekiah and the Assyrian invasion. Uh, Ezra and Nehemiah overlap in recording the return from captivity. Sometimes even different prophets mirror each other. Haggai and Zechariah and their message to rebuild the temple are written to the same people at the same time. But if you just read those books, you would say, whoa, this is really, really different. Even in the New Testament, we have four Gospels about the same 33 years but John was written much later, and it's much different than what we call the synoptic Gospels. And even in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, there are a lot of differences because of the audiences and the purpose of those books. The book of Acts records the establishment of many churches that we see in the epistles, and Paul sometimes speaks of the events that took place in Acts and the epistles. That's not an ex not, uh, an, it is an extensive list. It's not a complete list. All that to say, we see this a ton, don't we, in our Bibles? What do we do with that? Well, skeptics a lot of times want to take that and say, well, there's all these contradictions, there's all these issues between the different accounts, and in part, that's what I would like to address this evening regarding some books that we have just about completed. One of the most direct comparisons between some of the Old Testament books of history are the books of First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings as a group, and First and Second Chronicles, those two books. They're writing about the same events, and they are sometimes almost exactly the same. In fact, we have verses that are, word for word, exactly the same. But they are often very, very different in the things that they record. Why is that? And even more, why did God do this? Why do we have the accounts of First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings and the accounts in First and Second Chronicles? Well, we've already hinted at it, haven't we? That they were written at different times. They were written at different times. Uh, if you look there in your Bible, which was written first? Well, the accounts we assume of 1st and 2nd Samuel and 1st and 2nd Kings. And we see when these concluded. Um, that's why they're in the order that they're in. In 2nd Kings chapter 25, for example, in verses 27 through 30, this is how it ends. Now it came to pass in the 37th year of the captivity of Jehoiachin, king of Judah, in the 12th month, on the 27th day of the month, 
that evil Murdoch, king of Babylon, in the year that he began to reign, released Jehoiachin, king of Judah, from prison. He spoke kindly to him and gave him a more prominent seat than those in the, of the kings who were with him in Babylon. So Jehoiachin changed from his prison garments, and he ate bread regularly before the king all the days of his life. And as for his provisions, there was a regular ration given him by the king, a portion for each day, all the days of his life. And this is the last king. This is the last recording that we have in the book of Kings. But if you go over to Second uh, Chronicles 36, um, the last events of King Jehoiachin are probably around 560 B.C., we go over to 2 Chronicles, thirty-six. Let's read verses twenty-two through twenty-three. What do we have here? After Jerusalem goes, is falls, and the people go into captivity, it doesn't end with this account of Jehoiachin. Instead, this is how it ends in verses twenty-two and twenty-three. Now, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia. The word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled in that the king stirred up the king of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing, saying, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, All the kingdoms of the earth of the Lord God of heaven has given to me, and he has commanded me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah, who is among you of all his people. May the Lord his God be with him and let him go up. So instead of ending with the king in Babylonian captivity, we actually go forward to the Persian Empire and Cyrus in the return. Uh, this is probably around 539 B.C., and so those are still very close. But it's even more interesting, we won't take the time to read it, but in 1 Chronicles 3, there's a lengthy genealogy of the kings and their descendants and it mentions at least two generations after Zerubbabel who returned from captivity. And that tells us that Chronicles was probably written around 400 B.C. So we're talking about maybe 150 years later than the books of First and Second Kings. What does that mean if it's written around 400 well, we remember the 400 years of biblical silence, right? That means that this is either the last or one of the last books that was written in the Old Testament. And the inspired writer of the book of Chronicles uh, could and did incorporate much of the Old Testament canon. All of these other books that were written that foreshadow the coming of the Messiah or the coming of the Christ, which hints at our second reason why we have these. They were written at different times to different people, but they were also written with different purposes. Why do we have four Gospels? You know, why do we need four Gospels? Well, they were written at different times, but they were written with different perspectives, with slightly different purposes, to slightly different audiences. Uh, and just as a plug, that's what we're going to be studying on Wednesday nights, the portraits of Jesus in the four Gospels, seeing why they're different and how they're different and what that tells us about Christ and being rooted and grounded in Him. But the same thing is true for First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, and First and Second Chronicles. Samuel and Kings are intended to be just an accurate record of what happened, the good and the bad. But what about First and Second Chronicles? Well, think about it. It's a different time, a different people. 
And so imagine that you are one of these people to whom First and Second Chronicles would have been written. Imagine that you're a Jew and you're living in Jerusalem after the return from captivity and there have been multiple generations and you're here in this small province. You kind of carved out a little existence for yourself there in Jerusalem and the surrounding areas. You've returned from captivity, but things are really not that great, just to be honest. What kind of message would you need to hear at that point? Well, probably one of encouragement, one of hope, and one where you could look to the future and say, God is still with us and better days are coming. Phil Roberts, I love this quote. Maybe instead of having a 35-minute lesson or whatever, I could have just put this quote up here. Samuel Kings was looking back with penitence Chronicles was looking forward in hope. Um, Again, that's Phil Roberts. Uh, I am indebted to him for much of the material in this lesson. He answered this question for me when I was in college, uh, and it's a question that I had had as I had done my personal Bible reading and so forth. Uh, And so I just want to give that credit to him for a lot of the things that we're going to be talking about tonight. As we think about this idea, looking back in penitence and looking forward in hope. That's really the difference between Kings and Chronicles. One is looking backward and one is looking forward. Now let me give you some examples of that. You think about Saul and King Saul. In 1 Samuel we have a ton about Saul and about his reign and the coming of uh, the United Kingdom and the monarchy. But in Chronicles, Saul is dismissed quickly and we'll kind of do the same tonight. The Lord is specific in talking about he was the one who put Saul to death in in 1st and 2nd Chronicles. Uh, And again, Phil Roberts says the author of the Chronicles looks at this kingdom really beginning with David. The, The kingdom doesn't begin with Saul per se. It really begins with David and his descendants. And it's interesting, it's not just the things that are included in greater detail in 1st and 2nd Chronicles. It's also what's omitted. Um, If you have your handout, you'll be able to see these omissions from the life of David in Chronicles that we have in uh, 1 and 2 Samuel. Okay, so we have a number of things listed up here. David fleeing from Saul, that's a long section. 1 Samuel 16 to 2 Samuel 1. Conflict with Ishbosheth, there is this back and forth for who's going to have the throne between David and Ishbosheth. We don't see that in Chronicles. David's kindness to Mephibosheth, who was another person in Saul's family. David's sin with Bathsheba, uh, 2 Samuel 11 through 20, a long section talking about that sin. We don't see that in Chronicles. And we don't see all of the fallout from that in the kingdom and in the lives of so many people that it touched. That's not found in Chronicles. Uh, Putting the seven descendants of Saul to death, we don't see that in Chronicles. Uh, This is an interesting one. David rescued by Abishai in battle. Turn to 2 Samuel 21. Chronicles talks in great detail about almost every battle of David as king. Uh, In chapters 14, 18, 19, and 20 of 1 Chronicles, it talks about all of these battles and all of these victories that David had. And when we talk about parts of these two books that are almost exactly alike, 1 Chronicles 24 through 8 almost exactly duplicates 2 Samuel 21, 15 through 22. 
But there is one big battle that is missing, and that's found in 2 Samuel 21. I'll get over there. I need to quit talking and turning. 2 Samuel 21, verses 15 through 17. So here's my question. Which one of these battles is excluded, and why do you think that is? Um, what did I say? 2 Samuel 21, 15 through 17. When the Philistines were at war again with Israel, David and his servants with him went down and fought against the Philistines, and David grew faint. Then Ishbi Benob, who was one of the sons of the giant, the weight of whose bronze spear was 300 shekels, who was bearing a new sword, thought he could kill David because he was faint. And Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, came to his aid and struck the Philistine and killed him. Then the men of David swore to him, saying, You shall go out no more with us to battle, lest you quench the lamp of Israel. So all of these great victories, all of these battles of David, and this one is not included in Chronicles. Why do you think that is? Because David is almost killed. We keep going down the list. Um, the song of David is not found in Chronicles. The words of David are not found in Chronicles. Uh, Abishag and everything that took place there in those verses in Kings is not included. Uh, that's the young lady who uh, kept David warm at the end of his life. And then David's charge to Solomon about Joab and Shimei, which is basically David telling Solomon, hey, I said I wouldn't seek revenge myself, but I didn't say you wouldn't, so why don't you go ahead and kill those guys after I die? Look at that list. Of the things that are omitted, why do you think they're omitted? Well, we see these two are just long sections of David talking. You wouldn't necessarily have to recount that again in a different book. But almost everything else on that list... What kind of guy does David look like in those accounts? It paints him in a really negative, poor light. It's accurate, but David, this great king, is kind of a pretty flawed individual in all of these accounts, uh, with the exception of his kindness to Mephibosheth. But again, that kind of deals with Saul, and Chronicles isn't concerned with Saul and Saul's family. Maybe that might make some a little bit uncomfortable. Was the writer of 1st and 2nd Chronicles trying to hide these things about David? Is this, as some allege, propaganda or whitewashing of David's life to try and hide the bad things that he did? Well, the easy answer to that is no. The more complete answer is they already had 1st and 2nd Samuel and 1st and 2nd Kings. And other, we, we believe, other accounts of the things that took place during the time of the kings as well. They knew what David did, good and bad. And that's not the reason that First and Second Chronicles was written. The chronicler chooses to dwell on the legitimately glorious aspects of David's reign. David did a lot of bad stuff, but he also did a lot of really amazing, godly, filled with faith stuff, too. And that's where the writer of the Chronicles chooses to focus, because he is connecting David to a future king of Israel, the Messiah. The Christ, the one who is coming to reign in the future. Uh, we see a ton of this in the Psalms. Psalm 2, Psalm 89, Psalm 110, and others paint this same picture of a king who is victorious over all his foes, and he reigns in perfect justice and mercy. He is like David, only better. 
And this is who they were looking forward to after returning from captivity. This Messiah is coming. And the writer of 1st and 2nd Chronicles says, this is what he's going to be like. You take David and you take all the bad stuff away from David, that's what he's like. I mean, how exciting. How exciting would that be? How much hope would that fill you with knowing that a king like that is coming? And so the chronicler wrote an idealized history of the past to provide a picture of what was going to happen in the future. The author writes real history, but it's also selective history. Um, It really fulfills what we see there in Psalm 110. Let's just read that psalm together for just a moment. A short psalm. And again, this is just one example of these royal psalms that look forward to this perfect king. But let's read Psalm 110 together. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Now that's quoted in Ephesians and Hebrews And we see that it's not David. Um, David is ultimately talking about somebody who would be over him. The Lord said to my Lord, verse 2, The Lord shall send the rod of your strength out of Zion, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people shall be volunteers. I love that about this king. Everybody there is doing what they do willfully. They're there voluntarily. They're willingly following this king. He doesn't rule these people with a rod of iron. Uh, He rules them out of their desire to be like him and to follow him. In the day of your power, in the beauties of holiness, from the womb of the morning, you have the dew of your youth. The Lord is sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. And again, this is quoted in Hebrews. This king is also a priest. The Lord is at your right hand. He shall execute kings in the day of his wrath. He shall judge among the nations. So this king in his great kingdom of volunteers, he's also a priest. He's also a judge. He shall fill the places with dead bodies. He shall execute the heads of many countries. He shall drink of the brook by the wayside. Therefore, he shall lift up the head. Here is this one who's going to lead them into victory, as Psalm 110 tells us. And so the purpose for the selection of the writer of 1st and 2nd Chronicles is to inspire hope in a future glorious descendant of David who's going to ascend to the throne. Hamilton says, he is interested more in theological symbol than a tidy historical picture. Now don't misunderstand me. That doesn't mean that he lies, uh, but he emphasizes certain things over others. And therefore, the passages about David that don't fit this glorious picture, again, that they already knew about, those things were left out. But again, it's not just what was left out, it's what's included. We think about Psalm 110 and this king who is also a priest. Chronicles focuses on the temple way more than 1st and 2nd Kings. God's acceptance of David's desire to build the temple, even if he didn't do it. There is a focus on the priests and on the Levites. And only the families of David and Aaron are traced from the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, all the way through the exile. And that looks forward, again, as we read in Psalm 110, to a uniting of those families and a Messiah who would be prophet, priest, king, and judge. Uh, 
And the Chronicles also focuses almost exclusively on the southern kingdom, the kingdom of David. And there are long, long sections in the Chronicles that we don't have in 1 and 2 Kings that are devoted to the reforms of Hezekiah and Josiah, the southern kingdom's two greatest kings, and their faithfulness to God, His law, and the restoration of the temple. All of that says to these people, this is what it could be like. Kings shows how they ended up where they were, in captivity and now in this really poor state in return from captivity. The rebellion of the kingdoms, especially the northern kingdom. But Chronicles tries to lift them up with a brighter picture of the future. There is hope with repentance. Again, I quote from Phil Roberts. They needed to be reminded of the glorious destiny that they had been promised. They needed to have their eyes turned toward a brighter future. So again, I ask the question, is that fair and right and honest for the writer of Chronicles to do that? Well, let's pretend. Um, we, we, we do this with history all the time. Let's pretend that I'm a commander of some army. I'm a captain or a general. And I'm trying to inspire the troops as we're about to go into battle. And so I recount the crossing of the Delaware by George Washington on Christmas Day of 1776, and I talk about the bravery of Washington and his men, and how they routed the British, and it was really a turning point in the entire Revolutionary War. And hopefully that sort of history, true history, would encourage the troops and prepare them for the battle ahead. Now if I recount that one event from the life of George Washington and leave everything else out, am I being dishonest? Well, you might say... George Washington was a slave owner, and he was. He wasn't always a good man, and there were occasions where he wasn't. He suffered other defeats in battle. He didn't always win, and that's true. And you just pretended like all of those things never happened. Well, because that wasn't my purpose. And the men and women who might be under my command would have already known those things about George Washington. I didn't have to tell them. But it didn't take away from the fact that that river crossing actually happened on Christmas Day, 1776, and it applied to the issue at hand. And that's exactly what we see with First and Second Chronicles. So let's make four points of application to the things we've talked about tonight. Number one, when people try to accuse the Bible of contradictions... And this applies to differences we see in First, uh, Second Samuel, First, Second Kings compared to First, Second Chronicles. It applies to the Gospels. It applies to a number of other places. All of those things that we talked about at the beginning of the lesson. Remember this: when critics try and do that, the Bible is accurate historically, and this has been proven over and over and over. It's been proven by extra-biblical accounts. It's been proven by archaeology, the accuracy of the biblical account. But it is not always complete, and it is not always chronological. And it's not intended to be. That's not the way they wrote these histories. And it's not accidental that it's not complete or chronological. It's not because they didn't know or they didn't remember or the Holy Spirit didn't inspire them to these things. It's intentional. Because they're trying to communicate specific things to to specific people. You see the difference? You see the difference between being accurate but also not being complete or chronological? I mean, we do that all the time, don't we? Uh, If I say to you, I brushed my teeth and took a shower before church this morning. 
Is that true? You'd say, well, I hope it is, right? I hope that's true. And it is. But I also shaved this morning, and, and I got dressed to come to services. And in fact, I showered before I brushed my teeth. My account was historically accurate to say I brushed my teeth and took a shower before church this morning, but it was not complete, and it was not chronological. Would you say that I lied or hid something by saying I brushed my teeth and took a shower before church this morning? Of course not. Again, coming back to that question, what did you do over Christmas break? If I were to answer that question, and some of you have asked that, how was your trip, you know, what did you do, those sorts of things, I would probably tell you about how we went and we visited family in Indiana, uh, and how cold it was, and uh, how I thought I got frostbite trying to get logs from the shed to the house, and those sorts of things. But if you were a huge college football fan, I might say, well, you know, we went with Andy and Sheila and saw the Texas game. And uh, all you Aggies would be excited because Texas lost, right? Who I'm talking to, I can answer that question accurately, and yet it's from a different perspective, including different details. Um, And that's exactly the way it is in the Bible. Application number two. We've spent all of this time, and the reason why I've preached this lesson is in part to help us in our Bible study. Sometimes we have to take a wide view of a book to see what specific passages are communicating. Why did the author write this? Well, we say that about specific verses. We say that about specific accounts or specific passages. But sometimes we need to take a step back and ask that about books, Why did the author write this book? Why did the Holy Spirit inspire this? To whom was it being written? This is part of understanding what we call the context. Why is this included? Why is this left out? Well, what was the author's overall purpose in recording these events to begin with? What was the author trying to emphasize? To whom was the author writing? And if we're able to answer those questions, it's going to be really helpful to us in seeing why uh, the inspired uh, authors wrote what they wrote. And again, that will be helpful to us on Wednesday nights uh, as we're studying the gospel accounts. The third thing, uh, and again, this is helpful to you as you're reading through the Bible this year, and we've talked about this a lot. Uh, We've talked about this a lot in Bible class. I talk about this a lot from the pulpit, but I just want to hammer away at this. The Messiah. In Greek, the Christ, who we know to be Jesus of Nazareth, he is everywhere in the Old Testament. Why was First and Second Chronicles written? Because it was looking forward to the Messiah and giving us a picture of what that Messiah was going to be like. Most everything, and certainly something in every single book of the Old Testament, is pointing us forward to the Messiah, to the Christ, to Jesus of Nazareth. Books like 1st and 2nd Chronicles perhaps are pointing uh, more brightly or more specifically than others, but all of them are pointing forward to the Messiah. Jesus is on every page of the Old Testament. But my final application is perhaps the one that is most directly applicable to all of us today from a spiritual perspective. I I hope this is helpful to you in answering skeptics of the Bible. I hope it's helpful to you in your personal Bible study. I hope it's helpful to you as you're looking for Jesus as you read through the Bible. But I really hope that it can be helpful to you in this final way. 
The difference in Kings versus Chronicles is a beautiful picture of how Christ can change our lives as well. From looking backward at an accurate account of our sins and our failings and our shortcomings and knowing all of the ways that we have fallen short knowing all of the ways that we've turned aside from God and His ways and His path and His will. And knowing all too well that we are sinners and that what we deserve is the wrath of God. In judgment against us for the sins that we've committed. We all are forced, if we're going to come to Christ, to look back in just that way. And to see ourselves accurately for who we really were. And yet the beauty is, through this same Messiah that was foretold in First and Second Chronicles, we can look forward now. We can look forward to our victories with hope and expectation knowing that just as the chronicler omitted all of those things that David did, God remembers our sins no more. He doesn't charge them to our account anymore. And when we stand before God in judgment with Jesus Christ as our mediator and intercessor by our side, it is not all of those sins that we have indeed committed that God is going to bring to account. But instead it is our submission to the one who can make all those things right. The Messiah, Jesus the Christ, is what can and should change this perspective in us too, just like it changed the perspective of these kings. So, maybe the question that begs to be asked is, which way are you looking? Are you in the position of kings where you're looking backwards? Or are you now in the position of Chronicles where you can look forward? Do you need to look back in penitence over your sin? Do you need to repent of those things that you have committed to put to death the old man of sin and come to Christ in humble submission so that He can can wash you clean in the waters of baptism? Or, praise God, have you already become a Christian and you are able now to look forward in hope? knowing that despite the times we fall short, we have an intercessor. We have someone to whom we can go to ask for forgiveness, and He promises to cleanse us of all sin and all unrighteousness. What a picture. What a picture of what our future can be. And if you're here tonight and you need to respond to the gospel call, that same gospel and good news that was foreshadowed in First and Second Chronicles is proclaimed to you this evening. Won't you answer the call? And we encourage you to do so as together we stand and as we sing. The Savior is